Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, John. It's great to talk with you. You know, the whole world is watching the Michael Flynn case, uh, and there might even be a development in that case by the time this gets to air. But I'm of the opinion that the media and the commentariat are, are missing a big part of the Flynn case because they're concentrating, obviously, on the legal case, and that has to do with Russia. But Flynn's Turkey connection perhaps is uh, much more telling and instructive uh, about uh, what's going on in the world today. And I could think of nobody better than you to uh, speak about that. Thank you. Let, let me ask you, uh, why is the Flynn-Turkey connection so important? It's a, great, it's a great question, and thanks for starting the day on such a, 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 a meaty conversation. The Flynn-Turkey connection, I think, has been a constant subtext in the overall discussion about the Flynn-Russia connection and foreign influence peddling or the, uh, the activities of foreign governments to try to influence U.S. foreign uh, policy decision-making. And Turkey has been a subtext in all of that. And Turkey is a NATO ally. It has the second largest uh, NATO member state has the second largest standing army in NATO. Turkey's been a member of NATO since 1953, but certainly in the last two years, but one would argue even a longer trajectory, Turkey has begun to play a very active role as a disruptor inside NATO. And there are some very specific uh, expressions of that, not the least of which is Turkey preparing to activate a Russian anti-missile defense system that Ankara has purchased. So the Turkey question and Turkey influence and also Turkey's reliability as a NATO ally, I think is the, the deeper and in some ways potentially more significant subtext in the Flynn story. And yet there's another aspect to the story as well. We learned about Flynn's connection to Turkey, not in some uh, alleged unmasking of Flynn's name, but rather in a very public op-ed that he published uh, on Election Day 2016, in which he advocated for the extradition of a Turkish cleric who has political asylum here in the United States. He advocated for a line that was uh, promoted by the Turkish government. And then months later, when he was under prosecution, he uh, admitted, uh, he filed, that he was an agent for the government of Turkey, something he had not revealed at the time he wrote the op-ed. What else uh, does this uh, case tell us about American democracy? Well, I, I was thinking uh, about the historical trajectory of the U.S.-Turkey relationship and then the, the question of foreign government influence in the U.S. And I think a great uh, place to, to start is the much-celebrated uh, speech by then-outgoing U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower in January of 1961. And in that speech, uh, he warned about what he called uh, the military-industrial complex and the uh, uh, rapid accelerated growth of the military-industrial complex and its potentially deleterious impacts on American democracy. He also talked about something called the Iron Triangle, the military-industrial congressional triangle, and the way in which that triangle um, could lead to what he called the disastrous rise of misplaced power. And insofar as Turkey is one of the largest purchasers of US-produced weaponry, um, I think putting the Flynn-Turkey relationship within the context of that Iron Triangle speech is very important since elected officials um, depend on the production and their, their respective states of, uh, of weaponry and materiel and those produce jobs. And so there's a calculus involved here when it comes to that kind of relationship with a foreign government. 
and Turkey, ostensibly as a, a NATO member state and U.S. ally, shouldn't be part of that concern. But as I mentioned earlier, I think there's cause for grave concern. All right, let's uh, try to unwrap those two aspects of this story, but let's also take a step back and try to give it some context because this is such a complex story. Flynn was advocating for the extradition of this Turkish cleric, Fatullah Gulen, who uh, is a controversial figure himself. Tell us uh, more about Fatullah Gulen. Well, Fatullah Gulen uh, is, uh, as you said, an uh, Islamic cleric. Uh, he's an imam. He leads a movement called Hizmet, which means uh, service. Uh, he uh, declares that he is not an Islamist. He rec rejects that term applied to himself. Fejlou Gulen has been living in the United States and Pennsylvania since 1999. He sought political asylum here then. He was seen at that time as an, uh, an enemy of the state by the, the Kemalist governments. And Fejlou Gulen has... Uh, uh, early on until really 2.13 is the tipping point, has be, been, had been um, a very, very close, confident advisor, ally of um, now President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Turkey's president. And most serious Turkish analysts agree that without the support from Gulen and his movement, he leads this service movement, which is a, um, a global grassroots service movement um, based on uh, principles of, of mystical Islam, without the support of the Gulenist movement in Turkey, that th the AKP party would not have won its first election victory in November 20, uh, 2002 and its subsequent victories. But there was a big break in beginning in 2013 and then in 2016 between the Gulenists and Turkey. But the, the, the kind of... Um, the amorphousness of the Hizmet movement in terms of its uh, source of, you know, infinite capital, it appears, uh, to generate the growth of its schools worldwide is one of the questions um, that people have about that movement and about Gulen's um, residence here in the United States and um, about the, the, the relationship between the Gulenists and um, the Erdogan government. So you mentioned schools. Gulen uh, has opened schools around the world. And in fact, uh, I, as I understand it, he's the largest charter school operator here in the United States. Uh, tell us about uh, those school openings, first of all, in, in uh, other parts of the world, and then about here in the States. Sure. Um, the, the foundational principle of, of those schools has been that there is no uh, contradiction between religion and science, at least that's the declared foundational principle. Um, and there, more specifically, no contradiction between um, Islamic philosophy and theology on the one hand and science on the other. Uh, the schools themselves are also dedicated to the uh, mission of public education or the education of the public. Um, one of the, the arguments of the Gulenist movement has been that Turkish citizens, in order to be active, contributing Turkish citizens must be educated. And so because they had an Islamic patina to them, uh, those parents who might not send their children to schools because of concerns about modernization, westernization, etc., uh, saw the Gulenist schools as an acceptable forum inside Turkey and more broadly, uh, and we can say a little bit about that, uh, for their, their children to be educated. So they're all over Turkey. Uh, the Gulenist schools uh, have a big footprint. Well, 
they, they had a big footprint in Central Asia, uh, all over Africa, uh, East Africa and increasingly West Africa, and now, as you mentioned, in the United States. Um, and in the early partnership between the Gulenist movement and the AKP, the Justice and Development Par Party government. And that's Erdogan's party. Right, Erdogan's party. Um, anywhere that the Turkish government um, engaged diplomatically, uh, they, uh, they pushed the ball forward for the opening of Gulenist schools. And so that's how we saw, for example, in the 2000s, the rapid fire expansion and growth of Gulenist schools all over East Africa, all over Central Asia. Uh, because they marched in lockstep, Gulenist schools and Gulenist program with uh, Turkish diplomatic ambitions, which included uh, uh, Turkey becoming a global power, not only a regional hegemon in, in the Middle East, but a global power. And the Gulenist schools were understood by the AKP party as a critical soft power tool for the expansion of Turkey's brand and influence worldwide. And you have, in fact, called the Gulenist movement the tip of the spear for Erdogan's accession to power, and yet there was a falling out. And so now, what's happening to many of those schools? They've been summarily closed down. In 2013, the first public fracture in the Erdogan or AKP and Gulenist movement occurred with the public protests uh, at Gezi Park in Istanbul against the Erdogan government uh, for plans to uh, to build over a, a large green space, one of the few remaining green spaces in Istanbul. Um, and the, that was a, um, a costly episode for the Erdogan government. It really uh, struck directly at Erdogan's brand of being uh, the representative of uh, all Turks and the working class in particular. And Erdogan um, <clears throat> subsequently came to uh, view the Gulenis as the architects of those protests, even though, interestingly enough, the protests were violently put down by uh, Turkish police, most of whom had been populated by 2013 by Gulenis. Uh, but that, that first fracture in the relationship occurred in 2013. And then in July of 2016, with the uh, attempted and failed coup, uh, the, with a failed uh, coup attempt against the Erdogan government, the Erdogan government de subsequently declared uh, Fethullah Gulen's movement as a terrorist organization. We hear the term FETO, F-E-T-O, the Fethullah organization, Fethullah terrorist organization, and began a, a massive roundup, detentions, imprisonment trials uh, of members of the Gulenist movement, purging key state institutions that had been populated by Gulenists, um, the judiciary, the military, uh, education, and the police. Uh, so there's been a real interesting volt face due to this rupture in the relationship. So the Gulenists nonetheless continue to play a very s significant role in the Turkish public imaginary and in Turkish politics, whether real or perceived. What about the Gulenist schools here in the United States? They're not being shut down now. We have uh, freedoms here that, that don't exist in Turkey. What are people learning in these schools? I understand that these schools are very good academically, uh, but are they also being taught the Turkish nationalist uh, point of view of history? For example, that the Armenian genocide did not occur. Is that, what, is that some of the learning that's going on in these schools here in the United States? John, I can tell you that um, the schools do have a, a 
uh, excellent reputation, academic re reputation. Their students perform well upon completion of schools and moving to the next level in, in education. Um, they are very competitive with other charter and private schools in the United States. Uh, they're known to be what we would consider uh, parochial schools insofar as there, as there is some religious um, teaching or philosophy that undergirds the curriculum. Regarding uh, the, the content, the full content of the curriculum, I can't say with certainty about the um, denial of the Armenian or more broadly genocide against Christians that was Turkey's founding moment. But I can say that the Gulenist movement is a Turkish nationalist movement. Although it has a global footprint, ultimately its origins um, and its commitments have been to uh, Turkey's leadership of global Islam. Um, so uh, that, that is informed philosophically into um, all of their activities. And that's one of the reasons that there had been such a, a positive synergy between Erdogan's kind of neo-Ottoman combination of is Islamic uh, commitments and Turkish nationalism with uh, the Gulenists until the two ruptures that I discussed earlier. And that would be perhaps a, a much more nuanced view of the Galenists than the one presented by Michael Flynn in his op-ed in which he presented them almost exclusively as Islamist radicals uh, bent on, on uh, destroying the, the so-called democracy of Turkey. Correct, correct. When Flynn wrote that piece, um, and as you mentioned earlier, at the time of writing the piece in the Hill magazine, he had not yet registered as uh, under Farah, the Foreign Agent Registration Act, as a, a lobbyist, a paid lobbyist for Turkey. Uh, but <clears throat> one of the Turkish states under Erdogan, uh, under the AKP, one of their main goals has been the extradition of Fethullah Gulen to Turkey. Um, and so um, the, the Turkish government has used or has engaged uh, individuals such as Flynn uh, to develop a narrative of the Gulenists as dangerous Islamists. Now, it's very, one of the intriguing and complex features of the Gulenist movement is this question of um, their commitments to a more radical form of uh, Islamic thought. Uh, some argue that it's there, others say that uh, that's hyperbole, and then there's finally the kind of, you know, third perspective that uh, it, the Gulenist approach may be a gateway to uh, more radical interpretations of Islam. But the, the, I think the intriguing thing or the sort of paradoxical point in terms of Flynn and his work with the Turkish government is that after all, it's Turkey that has become a leading voice in, you know, radical Islamic circles and Islamist circles and has embraced that quite actively, including in its engagement with, uh, with ISIS and Al-Qaeda actors um, and other uh, unseemly uh, Islamic terrorist groups. Regardless what we uh, think of Gulen, good or bad, uh, the argument that Flynn was proposing to extradite him to Turkey, and then there were even media reports that Flynn was involved in discussions to possibly even abduct Gulen and send him to Turkey for trial. Uh, what's your view on the uh, justice of doing something like that? Well, that would violate... Uh, the reason that the United States until now has not um, acceded to Turkey's requests and in increasing in some ways, threats and demands to extradite Gulen is because uh, his extradition would require, according to international law, that upon return to his country of origin, he would um, face a trial, a fair trial, a fair and just trial. 
and given the uh, kangaroo court nature of a Turkish judiciary uh, under the AKP party, particularly since 2016, that's an, uh, an, impo- an absolute impossibility. Also, given the, you know, Turkey's shift to a, um, you know, a centralized uh, presidential system of government, Erdo- that has given Erdogan interventionist powers um, in the Turkish judiciary that would ensure, all but ensure, that Gulen would not receive a fair trial. And on the basis, therefore, of its international legal commitments, the United States has refused to extradite, to uh, accede to Turkey's uh, demand that uh, Gulen be extradited uh, to Turkey. Erdogan accuses Gulen of being behind the coup uh, against uh, his government. Will we ever know uh, the truth in that matter? And will we ever know the f- where Gulen gets his funding from? I think there's a greater chance that um, we'll have more and more uh, information on the sources of Gulenist funding. Um, you know, U.S. government agencies are, are very interested in that. And um, I think it's it'll probably easier to trace that than it may be to know how actively, if at all, Gulen was involved um, in the coup. And I think there's a fine but nonetheless important distinction to be made here. Whether or not Gulen himself was involved or whether or not supporters or members of the Gulenist movement were involved. Again, considering the, the fracture between the AKP and Erdogan on the one hand and Gulen and the Gulenists on the other hand, the Hizmet movement, starting in 2013, one of the consequences of that fracture was Turkey's um, I think that's when we can see the real um, fork in the road, when the Turkish government uh, began its hard turn to authoritarianism, and I think we can even argue uh, totalitarian-style governance, because after the Gezi Park um, protests against the AKP government, that's when they began massive roundups uh, of members of the Gulenist movement, arbitrary and protracted detentions, uh, trials that, by most measures, international rights watchers measures and um, supporters of democracy in Turkey were unfair. Um, so there's a longer history there of the Turkey Gulenist um, rupture that might, um, you know, explain that Gulenists wouldn't have been upset had that coup uh, actually succeeded. Well, thank you for taking us down that long detour into what is. Uh... Gulenism. Uh, I think it, it's important to understanding the Flynn case, but it's obviously uh, there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, let's take a step into uh, the geopolitical situation. Why is uh, Turkey and what's happening there important to the United States? That uh, follows naturally from the Flynn question. Uh, the Turkey-Flynn relationship is 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 all about Turkey's um, larger geopolitical goals, and as I mentioned earlier. Um, the AKP government and President, first Prime Minister, now President Erdogan, uh, has been uh, very uh, candid about the objective of making Turkey a global power. And um, that objective of, of being a global power, based on, as I mentioned earlier, kind of neo-Ottoman foreign policy, one that blends um, uh, Islamic thought and Islamist teachings uh, with Turkish nationalism, has meant that uh, Turkey has begun to exercise from its perspective far greater independence vis-a-vis NATO as a whole and the U.S. more specifically, 
but from the NATO and U.S. perspective, Turkey has begun to play a very active and um, potentially threatening role as a disruptor within NATO and outside NATO. And we're seeing the culmination of that trend line uh, in the last month's intense discussions about the consequences of Turkey's activation of this Russian anti, uh, anti-missile system that Ankara purchased uh, and is about to, to activate. Those are the S-400s, correct? Yes, yes. And those S-400s uh, can uh, be used against uh, uh, F-35s and F-36, F-36s, which are part of the U.S. arsenal and the other NATO member states' arsenal, including Greece, which um, oftentimes has a, a bullseye on it when it comes to Turkey's foreign policy. Um, but Turkey's, uh, again, objectives of being a regional hegemon in the Middle East and really in that intersecting space of uh, West Asia or the Middle East, um, Southeastern Europe and Africa, um, has uh, it, its, its agitation and its flirtation and engagement with Russia, uh, Turkey's purchase of energy, its dependence, but its purchase of energy from uh, Iran and Russia, participating in sanctions busting, in fact, when it purchased energy from uh, from Iran. Um, that has given uh, NATO allies and the U.S. cause for great concern. And uh, several years ago, I think it's now three years ago, the Turkish Foreign Ministry also published a set of maps um, uh, uh, for the region. And interestingly enough and <clears throat> concerningly was the fact that um, parts of Iraq up to Mosul were included in those maps as Turkish territory, and parts of uh, Greece, uh, uh, Western Thrace and the Aegean Islands, all the way up to Crete, were also included in those Turkish maps, um, thro- sort of laying bare the fact that Turkey is not a status quo country. It's not a country that respects the sovereignty uh, and the territorial integrity of its neighbors. And these are foundational principles, of course, inside NATO. And that Turkey you know, based on those maps, uh, was willing to engage in a series of um, actions that uh, at worst could be um, episodic, produce episodic violence, uh, at best could pursue, excuse me, episodic violence, and at worst could lead to what some people fear this summer may bring a hot war in the, uh, in the Mediterranean or the Aegean. I understand in the last week, uh, Turkish forces have uh, set up uh, a camp on a territory that is across the Evros River, which had been the border with Greece. is What's the status of that? Turkish police remain encamped on that, um, that piece of Greek territory. The Evros River, which is the natural uh, geographic border between uh, Greece and Turkey, uh, in western Thrace for Greece, Greece, eastern Thrace for Turkey. Uh, Turkish police are camped on that spot. Um, the, the riverbed of the Evros River changes depending on rainfall and rainflow, but there's never been any question uh, either in Turkey or in Greece, much less anywhere else about that na- the, the border, the legal border as well as the natural border. Uh, Turkish police are now camped there. Uh, this is the aftermath of an effort earlier on in the COVID-19 pandemic of, of the Turkish government to send huge amounts of mixed migrants, uh, largely economic migrants, some refugees and asylum seekers across the border at that spot. The EU took a hard line with Greece that uh, Turkey was weaponizing human beings, trying to send them across the border. And the the fallout from that has been the encampment of this 
Turkish police uh, unit uh, in that space. And Turkey has now claimed that um, that is not Greek territory and that in order to resolve the disagreement that uh, there should be a commission formed. And that's a consistent uh, tactic that Turkey utilizes when it calls into question the territorial integrity of its neighbors, most oftentimes Greece, because Turkey violates Greek airspace and now is, um, and, and um, it's uh, maritime continental shelf as well. Um, and, and we're seeing um, indications that the maritime disputes or the maritime dispute by Turkey, I should say more accurately, I think it's important to be precise here, um, is something that could easily devolve into a hot incident this coming summer. Let's uh, not just leave the S-400s yet. Uh, from uh, your telling, these missiles would be capable of shooting down U.S. fighter jets. What are the implications of that capability, and I understand the S-400s have been tested and partially deployed, but not fully deployed at this right. point. And uh, what are the implications of that for the uh, U.S. nuclear weapons at Incirlik Air Base in Turkey? Well, so there are these, uh, you know, there are these nukes at Incirlik. Um, Incirlik, again, is a, it's a NATO air base, but has the um, U.S. nuclear weapons there. Um, the implications of the S-400 missile defense system are pretty straightforward. Uh, they could potentially prevent the United States or any NATO member state from having access to Incirlik, which would de facto leave Turkey in control of those nukes. And in fact, there, again, there's a, a, a backstory to this. After the coup attempt in uh, 2016, when it became clear that there was great and growing instability, domestic instability in Turkey, and on the, you know, on the back of a long um, history of Kemalist governments, so-called secularist Kemalist governments, and now Erdogan's Islamist government in closing out um, and closing access to Interlik every time the United States Congress would um, would discuss a uh, the passage of a, an Armenian genocide bill. There was grave concern from 2016 onward with domestic instability and Turkey's flirtation with Russia that um, those nuclear weapons uh, would become hostage to Turkey and. There was a discussion, a brief discussion, about relocation of the Incirlik nukes uh, to uh, another uh, NATO member state. And, and, I, and I think that discussion is um, expanding and deepening at a rapid fire pace, given um, what we're about to see with the, the full activation of the S-400s. President Trump has been quoted as saying he has a conflict of interest uh, with Turkey because he has a major, major building uh, in <clears throat> Istanbul. Uh, yet he was uh, willing to appoint uh, Flynn, despite his known ties to the Turkish government. And then there was the famous phone call uh, between Erdogan and Trump, in which Trump effectively gave Erdogan the green light to invade uh, northern Syria. What role, because you mentioned that there are discussions within the U.S. government to possibly remove the uh, nukes from Turkey, so there must be a debate within the U.S. government, but what role is the, the Trump administration playing in all of this? Well, we, we can see from everything that's public that there has been a, an increasing divergence between Congress on the one hand and the executive branch, the White House on the other. And I, I think the S-400 activation uh, may be the, um, will probably be the test case to see whether or not that divergence continues or not. And although the president has, uh, as you said, you know, de facto 
you know, to put it in the vernacular, de facto gave Turkey the green light to invade uh, for its second invasion of northern Syria. That's another important thing. Turkey had already uh, invaded northern Syria around Afrin um, in, in the west. Uh, Turkey wanted to move into northern Syria in the east and establish this, you know, entire zone of control. Um, and where congressional officials had been opposed to that, the president um, supported it either actively, passively, directly, or indirectly. Uh, I, I think you know the uh, President Trump has lost uh, a lot of uh, political capital um, in, in his inability to convince President Erdogan uh, to step back from uh, con consistent red lines in terms of demands vis-a-vis -vis the United States. And it may well be that with the S-400s and the uh, very likely, well, in fact, the legal requirement, but then the likely congressional decision to uh, impose economic sanctions on Turkey, that the White House will um, step over to the congressional side on this particular issue. Because otherwise, this, you know, uh, represents yet another instance in which President Trump is unable to get um, President Erdogan, a key NATO ally, a special partner with the United States, um, to take measures that are consistent with U.S. national security and foreign policy interests. And I think that's the key thing here, that the president has um, is beginning to be understand the overwhelming evidence that Turkey's, um, Turkey's engagement with Russia, Turkey's ambitions to be a mar an Eastern Mediterranean maritime power, to turn the Eastern Mediterranean into a Turkish lake, uh, to challenge uh, energy exploration that the United States support that involves Greece, Israel, um, Cyprus, the Republic of Cyprus, and Egypt, that these are things that uh, run against uh, U.S. foreign policy interests, and therefore that they would cost the president uh, by his willingness to basically um, concede to, um, to Turkish President Erdogan that Turkey has carte blanche to do whatever it wants, regardless of whether or not that uh, presents an, an imminent or a more medium-term threat to U.S. geopolitical interests in, in Eurasia. It seems that carte blanche and, and those red lines are being crossed here in the United States with the, with the beating up of uh, protesters in Washington by uh, Erdogan's personal guard uh, during one of his visits to Washington, D.C. Correct. Um, Turkey uh, has, uh, I mentioned earlier, Turkey's, you know, willingness to violate the territorial integrity of its neighbors. So, um, you know, uh, attack the sovereignty principle that by which the entire international system has been, been organized for centuries. Um, Turkey has uh, used other mechanisms to undermine the sovereignty of um, other countries, and in this case, the U.S., on three separate visits here to the United States. Uh, Prime Minister and then President Erdogan's security detail used violence against American citizens. And the most, um, you know, widely viewed and, um, you know, uh, you know, infamous episode occurred across from the Turkish embassy in Washington when protesters, U.S. citizens, protesters uh, were um, beaten up, uh, roughhoused. They were, violence was perpetrated against them by members of Erdogan's security detail. So, you know, a view that, the, you know, a Turkish diplomatic mission can come to the United States and perpetrate violence against U.S. citizens, much the way they do with impunity against their own citizens. I mean, that is a, 
a huge red line. And there's actually a legal case underway now um, to try to bring those perpetrators to justice. But that's a that's a, a dimension of the rejection of playing by rule of the law and sovereignty principles uh, that you know Turkey has long practiced. It's the first time that the U.S. has experienced it at Turkey's hands inside the American house. So much has been made of uh, Russian attempts to uh, influence uh, U.S. politics, U.S. policy. What do we learn uh, from uh, all of the Turkish probings, if you will, not only from Erdogan, uh, from uh, uh, Gulen's soft power incursions? Uh, what does this tell us about what's happening to American democracy? Well, this takes us back, I think, to where we started, and I referenced that um, that speech by President Eisenhower. I, I, I think I think there's ample evidence that, um, and I think the coronavirus has thrown this into sharpest relief that our institutions, our democratic institutions, and by extension, you know, our our uh, infrastructure and associated institutions are not in fullest health, and. Foreign governments, governments use all the tools at their disposal, whether hard power or soft power, um, in order to advance their interests. So the Turkey-Flynn relationship is part of that, you know, toolbox, one could argue, that, you know, Turkey uses in order to advance its own interests and geopolitical goals. I think the, the real concern about the, the Flynn-Turkey relationship is that it lays bare the, um, you know, it, the extent to which foreign governments uh, utilize um, penetration to affect decision making at the highest uh, levels of U.S. foreign policy and decision making, uh, and um, the failure, for example, of of Flynn to register under the um, the FARA Act to declare to register as a foreign lobbyist um, put him in a, an illegal zone, but also in a, a gray metaphorical zone when it came to. Uh, Turkey using its influence in a way that could undermine um, U.S. institutions. We're a rule of law country or a society that's built on respect for laws. And the, um, the use or the interpretation of those laws in a highly elastic fashion or the violation of those laws at the hands of a foreign government or by virtue of relationships with a foreign government is indeed, I think, a, a grave danger to American democracy. And that military industrial congressional iron triangle that um, President Eisenhower warned against, I think is, is something that is, a, is a, indeed a, a danger for American democracy uh, because it does lead to the disproportionate concentration of power in both particular institutions of American governance, whether it be the Pentagon in this case, um, but also in private sector actors who develop their relationship with those, those institutions. And those interests then are narrow. They're not interests of the public, the collective good and the public good. They're not interests that necessarily then map onto national security. They map onto profit making um, and, and other kinds of institutional relationships that corrode and erode our democracy. There was a, there was a big, you know, discussion about this in the aftermath of the brutal murder of Kemal uh, Khashoggi, the, the Saudi journalist, 
um, who was murdered and dismembered in, in the Saudi embassy in Turkey, about the way in which Saudi Arabia has utilized its resources, financial assets largely, to influence American decision making. And I think the same holds true for Turkey. We tend not to think about it in the case of Turkey because after all, they are a, a NATO member state and technically an ally. But the kinds of actions that Turkey has taken, the S-400s, the threats to begin, for example, um, natural gas exploration south of Crete, a, a NATO member state and ally that would challenge the territorial waters uh, of Greece. Uh, Turkey's saber-rattling and anti-Semitism in its statements vis-a-vis -vis Israel. All of these are you know, actions which suggest that you know, Turkey is beginning to behave in a way that in no, does not represent NATO as a community of democratic values and that um, diverges from NATO's collective security priorities. And if we circle that back to the United States, Turkey has utilized tools in the U.S., whether it's, uh, you know, engaging someone like Flynn, whether it's, um, you know, it's, it's support in, and it's funding of academic programs in American higher education, or whether it's in its very active engagement in the media or its hiring of lobby organizations to advance its soft power interests. And um, those mechanisms are, are ones that I think over time have uh, been part of a broader um, corrosion of the durability and robustness of our democratic institutions. You are in touch with many Turkish academics. Um, what, what is the role of the, uh, or the, sta the status right now of the democracy movement uh, within Turkey? And, uh, and did, any, did anything come of those uh, uh, protests at Gezi Park? Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, Turkey is, you know, technically now by, you know, all metrics, uh, an authoritarian uh, state. Uh, it's, you know, the features of its democracy that gave so, have long given so much hope uh, for, you know, an, a broadening and deepening of, of Turkish, um, the Turkish democratic political system. Those have been really cut off at the knees by the Erdogan government. And so um, there is a, a, an active, I would say, um, commitment to um, re-democratization in Turkey. Uh, by academics, by civil society actors, by NGOs, but um, they uh, are forced uh, to, um, they're forced to have a very low kind of tone because the response of the Turkish government has been uniform to arrest and detain people and usually convict them um, with long prison terms. Uh, many Turkish academics in particular, you know, that I, that I know very well, many Turkish academics have been forced to flee Turkey um, they have been threatened, their families have been threatened and intimidated. There are cases of disappearances in Turkey where, you know, someone wakes up the next morning and their, you know, extended family has disappeared and it's impossible to find out where they are. I mean, these are, these are the, the signals of totalitarianism. And so I think, you know, for uh, Turkish citizens, you know, bravely engaging in some activities uh, and discussions about how to um, how to avert uh, this this ongoing trajectory in Turkey, as well as for those Turks outside who are writing about, who are advocating for, um, they they deserve support um, and uh, and applause. And you know, uh, as I said, the the they're brave um, because the costs are are very high for them and their um, potential family members. 
but right now, if we look at recent, for example, the um, the Bertelsmann Foundation in Germany, uh, the Atlantic Council, they both released uh, reports on the state of democracy in the world, and both of them identified Turkey as, uh, I think Bertelsmann called them a, 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 an outright dictatorship, um, or maybe that was the Atlantic Council, and Bertel, Bertelsmann called them um, uh, also a dictatorship. So that kind of language is now being used to apply to Turkey, given the suffocating um, role that the president of Turkey is playing and the, the, the gutting of Turkey's democratic institutions and, um, and, and its civil, vibrant civil society. We have been speaking with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Prodromu, a, a professor at the Fletcher School at Tufts University about the implications of the Michael Flynn case. And uh, let me conclude, if I could, uh, Elizabeth, uh, much of the commentary about Finn, uh, Flynn is now devolving into the partisan polemics about whether he was railroaded by the left and wrongly prosecuted, or whether there is a, a conspiracy on the right to deny Russian interference in the 2016 election. But as we've just seen in the course of this conversation, the Flynn story is so much, so much more complex. Why do you think the American media, by and large, is not telling this story? I mean, there have been media reports on everything we've talked about, but it's not at all central to the uh, narrative that's going on right now. I think uh, probably three reasons. Number one is, as you mentioned, John, at the beginning, uh, the hyper-partisanship that has come to characterize our, our political system. So the entire Flynn story is refracted through the lens of, of partisanship. Um, so there's a focus on party over country. And I think that's something, going back to your earlier question, that is um, very deleterious for the health of our democracy, number one. Um, number two, me, the media is interested in... Um, uh, headlines and uh, bottom lines. And I think the Flynn-Russia connection figures more um, directly into both uh, that calculus of a good headline and a good bottom line. Uh, but I do think that the Flynn-Turkey story is really the, uh, the, the key story here. The, the narrative and the reality of U.S.-Russia relations um, over the past um, well, the second Obama administration, certainly the entire Trump administration, has one of, been of a you know downward trajectory and spiral. And there's been a lot of discussion about a new Cold War. I think you know many analysts are beginning to sort of walk back that language. Um, and if one looks at metrics uh, like population size, population growth or decline, one looks at economic robustness. Russia, for example, its population has declined steadily since the end of the Cold War. It's a single commodity economy relying on energy. Uh, Russia has not been able to upgrade its infrastructure. Uh, Russia is, um, although an important power, um, in many ways, it's a, a vulnerable and declining power, whereas um, Turkey finds itself in a very different position. And I think that's largely because, been because of its membership in NATO. And I think for concerns of U.S. foreign and security policy, it's important not necessarily always to look outside um, the house, but look inside the house. And I think in the case of Turkey's membership in NATO, NATO is facing um, a growing a measurable and growing threat from within. And I, I mentioned this possibility of a, a hot incident in the Aegean in the summer. Um, if Turkey does move ahead, if Turkey uh, moves ahead on the Evros border with Greece, 
um, and also um, moves ahead with its declared plans to begin energy exploration in the Mediterranean south of Crete. These will be direct challenges to the sovereignty of a NATO member state. And that bodes very, very poorly for NATO to function in terms of accomplishing um, its, uh, its collective security goals. And so Russia, in some ways, fades from the picture because there's a major problem inside the alliance and in terms of the alliance's capacity to carry out um, its own strategic objectives. And appeasing Turkey, um, you know, by trying to incentivize Turkey, uh, to me is, um, you know, is not, um, it's not a feasible strategy because after all, the current policies of Turkey are the culmination of a long pattern by which Turkey has diverged from NATO's interest and its U.S.-Turkey um, bilateral relationship. So I think the time has come for more austere compliance um, steps on the part of both Washington and Brussels. Dr. Elizabeth Perdromu, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you for having me on. It's always great to talk with you. It always is.